Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast, the first episode of the year 2018. And uh, there's this conversation I recently had with Mike Lewis, um, who used to be the 112th best squash player in the world, but now he is no longer. <laughs> and I was like, we should probably release this. Now, I'm going to start end of the month with uh, new teachings, but um, I had to put this episode out this week because you, you're going to love Mike Lewis. Um, and, uh, but also, the Holy Shift Tour starts next week. I'm going out on tour. Uh, I think it's 20 cities between January and May. That's the first leg. Um, and first leg starts next week. Tucson and Phoenix are sold out, but end of January, I'm doing San Diego and Santa Barbara. Still tickets left for those. And Pete Rollins, uh, it's the first time I've had an opener. So Pete Rollins is coming along with me for the Holy Shift Tour. And would love to see you all at that. And then we just put up dates for another Something to Say workshop. And I'm telling you, these workshops, they're for communicators. So you bring, it's a smaller group of people, you bring to the uh, improv lab here in LA, you bring whatever it is you're working on. So you give talks, speeches, uh, scripts, stories, blog, website, whatever it is. You bring whatever it is. And then I like work on it with you, but everybody, oh, I can't even explain it, but these workshops, we, I did two last fall, um, have been, oh my word, it's hard to put into words. Um, it's just so much fun, among other things, but especially if you have some idea and you're trying to figure out how to give it shape and form, or you've been, perhaps you've been communicating for a while, but you're stuck in a rut, or maybe you have to get up on a regular basis and say something interesting. And you're like, wow, this is a slog. How do you do this long-term? We cover all of that stuff. So those are the something to say workshops. Uh, the new dates for the next one, which is the end of March are up now. Would love to see you here. And uh, all sorts of good things coming. But right now, my friends, Mike Lewis. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one, this is actually like the follow-up to an episode from almost two years ago with one and only Mike Lewis. Mike Lewis, welcome to the back house. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be back here. It's my special place here. <laughs> okay, folks, uh, forever ago, we did an episode with Mike Lewis called Mike Lewis is the 112th best squash player in the world was the name of the episode, which the title alone I'm so proud of. So here's how it works with Mike Lewis. I was surfing in Australia, and in the water, my friend tells me, you should meet Mike Lewis and hear this guy's story. So we connect. You come to the back house. We do that podcast episode. So we should do a brief summary, and then what you're up to now, and then we'll get to the book at the end and tell people all that. Does that make sense? Yep, that's perfect. <laughs> so, the, the really quick... So, you summary, go to Dartmouth. I went, yes. Is that, did I say that right? Dartmouth. Dartmouth? Dartmouth is that an Ivy fine. League school? It is. So, you go to an Ivy League school, so you're a fairly revved up individual. You're a sure. driver. You're a striver. Yeah. You're a pusher. I'm a pusher. Well, it's, it actually <laughs> it came from <clears throat> my love of this very obscure sport, squash. And I grew up in, <clears throat> in Santa Barbara, California. Squash is mostly a European sport. Five kids played west of New York City. I was one of them. <laughs> <clears throat> and when I was 14 years old, we hosted a traveling pro player. And I just remember sitting across the table from him. And he told me his dreams of 
traveling to mountains in Brazil and cities in Asia and, and towns along the Pacific playing the sport and how he was living his dream. And suddenly that night at 14, that became my dream. And so Dartmouth was an output of me just saying, I want to go play squash at the highest level. And there's only a handful of colleges in the States that offered it. So I was able to play at Dartmouth. It was great. And when it ended, I kind of thought, well, geez, what happened to that dream? So I started working in finance. I worked at a venture capital firm in Boston and Palo Alto called, called Bain Capital. The big us, bad guys. <laughs> tell, yes. Tell us about, because people have heard of Bain, I think. Yeah. So what does that job, what does that mean to work at Bain? In many ways, it was a, it was a dream job, certainly on paper. They had a venture capital group, and basically what that means is they had a, collected a bunch of money from schools and pensions and other places, and they would have young folks like me and others go out and look for ways to invest that money in small and growing companies. So they were looking for the next Facebook, the next uh, LinkedIn, the next Twitter, and my job was like the first gateway to... to, to Bain Capital. I was the first line of defense of yeah. reviewing business plans of entrepreneurs who thought they had the next. You're Facebook. hearing pitches. Yeah, all day, every day, meeting with entrepreneurs, going to, to coffee shops and conferences and trying to find the diamond in the rough. Literally looking at thousands of companies, maybe one we would invest in each year. And you are then looking for that one that you would take to the higher ups. Exactly. And you don't want to take a turd. You don't want to take a turn. Who would want to take a turn? Right. You want to take them something. You're like, no, this is gonna go. Yeah. It was, it was a uh, as my my there was one other analyst they hired, and it was this job that was so cool because there was no real description. It was like, here's the brand of Bain Capital, which in venture capital was a, a big deal, could get you a meeting with a lot of different folks, and here's kind of a you know a, a set of dollars you can spend on travel and resources. By the end of each week, every week, we expect that you'll come back with interesting companies that we should consider investing in. That was the job. Yeah. Lots of people would want these jobs, correct? Yes. I think, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I felt like I won the lottery when I got the job offer. There's yeah. two spots for several thousand folks that were applying. <laughs> so you do that. So I do that. And to back up a bit, I'm the youngest of six. My parents were th beyond thrilled that I had gotten to an Ivy League school. Uh, it was beyond our wildest dreams that then Bain came calling. It felt like on paper, every box was now being checked. And something happened about a year in where I realized, is this it? And it wasn't necessarily a, oh shit, this is it. Like, I'm stuck. It was, this is fine. But unlike my parents' generation, and perhaps their parents, where having stability for the next 30 years, if you were lucky, was a blessing, I kind of looked at my life and I knew that there was something else I wanted to do. And that happened to be professional squash. <laughs> you started playing at lunchtime or you played after work? Yeah, the, like neck as life works out in Boston, I was in the Hancock Tower, big, beautiful building. 30 feet from that tower was the best and really one of the only squash clubs in town that had a very competitive group of players. <laughs> so I would take a sick day. I would go at lunch, before work, after work, <laughs> at night. You know, you, when I wasn't working, I was playing at this club and I was still getting better each year. That was a big part because I had started squash relatively late as a kid. I felt like I had still had my best years in front of me. Mm -hmm. So there I was working, but also you know, having this dual life on the side. And it even ended up joining the Pro Tour part-time for my last year at Bain, just to see if I could, you know, up the ante a bit. So then 
you reach some point where you're playing more and more squash. You're sitting in a pitch meeting, but you're still sweating, I assume. Like you're trying to go back and forth between two different kinds of clothing. Oh, I can picture totally. this like double life. Oh, yeah. And then it comes like a, it comes to a fork in the road? What ha- yeah, so I had, I had even started saving up money. I made my own bank account, putting away some dollars each week to, to get some savings going. I pitched sponsors for space on my jersey in return for a few hundred bucks. <laughs> which was a terrible <laughs> lopsided deal uh, for them. But I made that clear. I used our own uh, presentation templates from Bain, to, you know, which I knew well. I just pasted my own squash logos on top. <laughs> and so it was a very, it, it was exactly that. It was a nights and weekends passion project. And in January of 13, I cold called a woman who I had read about in a magazine that happened to be on my desk. And she had left Wall Street to be a cyclist. And the article is about how she made the Olympic team twice. But what I wanted to know was how did she explain that decision to her parents? And I called her up and for some miracle she... Because you had, you had deep stirrings of, I kind of want to leave this solid job and go do squash. Was that, was that why you were intrigued by her thing? I was intrigued because it felt like up until that point, I was entirely alone. I felt like I was the only one in the world, especially at Bain Capital, but in the world, it felt like that was thinking of taking a left turn off of that linear staircase of a career. And here was a woman who at some point, yes, she was successful in her new career as a cyclist, but at some point she had to decide when to jump. And so I called her up and what she told me had nothing to do about making the Olympics or being a cyclist. All it was was this raw, vulnerable, nitty-gritty conversation around the fears that nearly kept her from making the decision, the tough conversations with her parents, the self-doubt that she had and still has. And what I realized was that relates to me, even though we had different jumps. That relates to you. It relates to the fellow bus passenger or the bartender down the street. We all have something we want to be doing. And here was a woman that was totally being honest about, yeah, it's really freaking hard to chase your dream. It's really scary. There's a lot of downs, maybe even more than there are ups, but it's still worth it. And that's when I hung up and sketched a cover page to a book, but really a community I wanted to start to say, let's share these stories more frequently and more visibly. Oh, really? So the community, you were at Bain when you started thinking of community. Yeah. And then you joined the squash tour? Right. So basically, (laughs) I sketched the cover page. I showed my buddy, Corey, next door, who's the last one in the office as well with me. It was this late winter night in January, freezing cold, dark, pitch black. I go into his cubicle, I'm like, hey, this should be a book. And then I kind of put it on pause. And over the next year and a half, I pitched more sponsors. I joined the tour. I would take a night flight to Chicago, play in the morning, be back by you know, lunchtime at, at work. It was no a totally, advent, you know, it was a different world, different life. And about a year later, in May of 2014, I, I said, I'm doing it. I knew at that point, as terrible as the worst case scenario could be, it wasn't as terrible as not trying. So I packed mm-hmm. up my, my bags. I, I told everyone I was leaving. I moved my life into a suitcase and I took a one-way ticket to New Zealand. <laughs> That's a good line. For a tournament? Well, it's funny. There was three tournaments in a row and I was 387 in the world when I had started part-time. <laughs> if, if that sounds... 387th best squash player in the world. 
if that sounds impressive, it shouldn't. Because you, Rob Bell, when we finish this, could go on to the PSAWorldTour.com and sign up. Pro pay Squash a few Association? Bucks. Is PSA Pro Squash Association? Pro Squash is Professional Squash Association. Professional. Yeah. But you could be the 388th guy, basically. Oh, okay. Maybe we'd be tied had I not played any tournaments. It's like the line at the deli, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was getting, yeah, I was getting off the ground from 387 while at yep. work. I had gotten to nearly 300, which is an also very spectacular in its own right. But I had hit my savings goal. I felt like this is the time. But I wasn't actually in any of these tournaments. I was on the wait list for three tournaments in New Zealand. But those were like the single A minor league stepping stones to playing the tour. <laughs> so I thought if I could get myself to New Zealand, I'll play for the month, maybe a, a couple months, maybe three or four, and then I'll reevaluate if I really want to keep going. But I just wanted to do at least the first month. And I remember the day, the day or the week before I left, uh, it was the week before I got an email from one of the organizers and I had just told Bain I was quitting. And the guy said in his email from small town in New Zealand, said, you know, are you sure you're coming down here? Because you're not actually in any of these tournaments. You're just on the wait list. And I said, buddy, I just quit my job. <laughs> I just moved my life into a bag. I am coming. And by grace of God, I was in off the wait list on the first three tournaments. And a month turned into three months, turned into six months, turned into nearly two years, 200,000 miles and 50-something countries. And the, the, the Professional Squash Association Pro Tour circuit is what countries almost any country you can imagine oh really there's a tournament in iran last week i didn't go had you played in iran before no no but you played all over yeah from from a tiny town dotting you know the pacific ocean in tahiti to uh, a mountaintop in france uh, with a french chef and his extended family uh, to a metropolitan area outside of singapore i once played in a in a like what was a virgin jungle in Malaysia where a royal prince liked squash. So he put in, you only need $5,000 to make the smallest prize money available tournament. And because there's not much money in squash, you'll get like a bunch of players to come. Like the best players in the world will come. We'll come to jungles in Malaysia and uh, you know, towns in Australia. I mean, I played all over the place from Dubai to Singapore, all the continents, rural Argentina, a mountain in Brazil, it was it was a dream, and every night while I was on tour, except for one, I was with other people, and that's what I really wanted. Oh, you don't stay in hotels because there's no money. Yeah, very rarely would I stay in hotels. I was at the bottom of the bottom. This was Bull Durham. <laughs> but what was crazy was I'd be with someone in like in France. I was with a chef at his at his literally on a home on the side of a mountain, playing in the small tournament. His cousin would be visiting I'd be five days into staying with the chef we'd all be having a blast no one really knew what each other was saying but we ate and celebrated his cousin's birthday would come up I'd be invited to the birthday dinner the cousin was from New Caledonia which is a dot in the Pacific Ocean if you get lost on the way to Fiji you get to New Caledonia and then she would say well you must stay with me so two weeks later I'd be having crepes with the French chef's cousin in New Caledonia and that's just the way I let things roll for, for weeks and weeks at a time for over almost two years. And did you come back to the States during this time? I came back a couple times. My sister got married. I was living above a squash court in Brazil. And I, um, I became a, the officiant 
which also sounds legit, except for you can do that in about 30 seconds for 20 bucks online. And I came back and officiated her, her wedding. And then I came back one other time to train. Otherwise, you're all over the world. Yes. And then, then what happened? Then do you start to get, then does it come to the, en- to the end? Do you start to get the next idea? What happens then? Well, a couple of things. One, my buddy Corey, who I mentioned, who was next to me at work when I sketched a cover page, he actually left Bain within that year and a half while I was still there. But he'd always ask me, when's that book coming out? When's that when to jump book? And I had one story with a U.S. senator who went to my school, who, who generously donated his time. But really, it was just a vacant Dropbox folder uh, called when to jump. And it was never going to be really anything. And I'd tell Corey, yeah, yeah, I'll get to whatever. And then sadly, a couple months into my trip at the end, in the summer of 2014, uh, Corey passed away in an accident. Oh, man. And, Oof. you know, that hit a lot of people in a lot of different yeah. ways. Yeah, he would have been young. He was 27. Mid, mid-20s, yeah. yeah. Oh. And he had started the Ice Bucket Challenge, if you remember that. He was yeah. just this larger-than-life figure. Uh, and in fact, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more on his story, it's the Corey uh, C. Griffin Foundation um, online. But it's, it's a powerful um, case of someone who just lived so much and yeah. impacted so many people in so many ways. Um, in just in just a short time, and oh man, and one of the things I thought of was his impact on me, and I, I went back to our conversations we had, and even our last emails, and he still expected this to be something, uh, this when to jump project. So I didn't actually care what happened to it, but I, I I messaged his brother and sister, and we chatted, and I was friends with both of them. I said, can we just can I. Can I have permission to at least privately dedicate this to him? Because he's going to be the reason this, this becomes whatever it becomes. Uh, he's this inspiration. And they you know, said, we'd be honored, go for it. And, and then over the course of that year while I was playing, I was interviewing folks on the side. I was hustling. I was cold calling people. I just wanted to have something there so that a side project could, could exist when I went back to the quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes, real world. <laughs> And then in conjunction with that, I knew that I never wanted to play squash forever. I, I set it up in an, as an adventure that would, that would run its course. I knew that at some point I'd get tired of the travel and living on couches. And somewhere over Bulgaria in the middle of 2015, <laughs> I, I knew I was done. And I'd done oh, you everything did? I wanted. Did you have a moment when you were like, okay, we're done? Yes. It, it was a plane over Bulgaria? It was a plane over Bulgaria. I felt like I was going to Bulgaria just to go and say I went to Bulgaria to play squash. And that felt not the reason to do this. Oh, wow. Interesting. So then, so then what did you do? So I was f- fortunate to get invited to try out for the U.S. national team, which also sounds legitimate, but I don't think it was that exciting. I got creamed and didn't really get close to making the team. But what it did was it gave me a few extra months actually in New York at the end of 2015. And there is when I met with a friend who I had met at a wedding a year earlier and she had a dad in publishing. And I said, listen, I've got a wrinkled backpack with flattened stories that I'd collected over the last year and a half. I just want to see if anyone would think... What was the nature of the stories? How would you describe the why these, what held these stories together? Well, the stories were as if you're sitting down for coffee or tea or beer with someone saying, tell us about your jump. As if I was recreating that conversation with the cyclist. I wanted to hear not what you see on Instagram or LinkedIn or on TechCrunch or, or what we talk about in pop culture, like the sexy stuff. 
I wanted someone to sit down and as if you're having a beer with them, tell you, here is the stuff that sucks about Here's chasing how your dream. difficult it was. Yes. About what you said about chasing your dream. About chasing your dream, about leaving something comfortable. Because uh, these are the stories that always move me. I'm always, even on Robcast interviews, I'm always like, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Tell me what that part was like. Yeah. Not the part that I can see externally, but the moment of fear, the moment of trepidation, the moment of doubt, the moment of insecurity. I want to know about that. I want to know about how you actually paid your bills when you were launching that. So you just did, you were picking these stories up. Yep. So I, I would, my dad, I was in Zimbabwe. My dad sent me an article from the New York Times about a baseball player who left the Cubs to go to college. I was back in California training before I went back on tour to Malaysia, actually, with a squash player who was about to go to divinity school because of his mentor's advice. And his mentor had left PR to go into the church. She had become the first female bishop in the Anglican church. <laughs> and it was like these stories fell from the sky. Like you talk about Paulo Coelho, you know, and the alchemist, all this you know, the universe conspires, but it truly happened like that. I came back to try out for the national team and I had gotten to Michael Lewis, the finance author, who... Oh, I love his stuff. Yeah, he's... Flash boys, money, like, oh. Liars poker, money ball. He's unreal. And we have the same name, which was, I think, the only reason he he was probably tickled (laughs) enough to take the interview. (laughs) Oh, that's right. He's Michael, though. He's Michael. I'm Mike. Mike. Which is so funny because we can get to the book later, but... I have this book coming out and people are like, oh, do you think it's going to be confusing? I said, I hope it's confusing. I hope everyone thinks it's his book. And maybe yes. later they'll be like, Because you'll hey, sell lots of cool. books. Yeah, why not? <laughs> From the guy with the same name as the guy. Yeah. But anyway, I came back at the end of 15, had this story from the baseball player, the bishop, Michael Lewis, and I met with this friend of a friend's dad who I'd ran into randomly over the summer. And, and he took 10 minutes with me and he said, you know, I have a literary agent that might take a chance on this. And I sat down with a literary agent the next week. And I just wanted someone to be invested in this with me. Because I knew that when life got busy and I'd go back to work, I didn't want to be one of those jokers who had a side project that didn't go anywhere. And this agent said, you know, listen, honey. And she is this small little lady in New York, absolute hustler. She said, 30 years ago, I left my law firm to start this agency. I jumped. I don't know if this will be a book, but it should be a book. (laughs) And she took a chance on me. She signed me that day. And over the next few months, I pushed off interviews, pushed off interviews for real jobs, lived on my buddy Crosby's couch in San Francisco for one month, turned into six months. And then right before the money ran out and I'd have to take a job, uh, two things happened. One, we, we went to publishers and got an amazing response, I ended up getting a, a couple book offers. And they went to auction and the number came up to something where I could, I could just write the book and bootstrap this community with events and partnerships and, and create a real space that I had envisioned years earlier. So tell me about the events. So what kind of events did you start doing? So in my cubicle with Corey, when I sketched the cover page, if you remember, I said, well, this should be a community. Yeah. The community would meet up. You'd have great food, really good drinks, listen to live music, uh, hear performances and speakers from people that are really incredible. But everyone participating has made a jump. So the guy who made the mott sticks you're eating or the craft brew that you're trying or the music you're listening to or the keynote speaker, all of them left some old life to chase this passion, whether it's in food or entertainment or, or, or sharing their story by keynote. And I called it Jump Club. And that would be a celebration of taking that risk. And so in our first Jump Club, we expected 30, 40 people. 
we ended up with over a hundred something. What was that like for you? It was like surreal. I mean, it was totally surreal. Cause up until that point I was on my buddy's couch hustling around with a bunch of papers. Yeah. Um, thinking that maybe this was all in my head, that I really was the only person that wanted to come together. And lo and behold, at this first event, we had people who were five years out of school or 25 years out, um, single parents, uh, students, immigrants, uh, grandparents, sharing drinks and, and, and eating food and, and breaking bread around this topic that I think is pretty universal. And, and it was neat to see it come to life. So then you started doing more events? We did more of them, but what we said was, let's make Jump Club once a year. Uh, we had Cheryl Sandberg come to our first festival, which was incredible. That's we uh, COO of Facebook? She's the COO of Facebook and the, the founder of Lean In. Wow. And so, has actually wrote the foreword to my book. So all of a sudden, people are... So all of a sudden, this is a thing. Pretty quickly. Well, in the span of like literally... Three weeks in March, actually right around the time I interviewed with you, which is why it's really special to get to come back. There we go. I interviewed with you as my first interview I'd ever done. And, <laughs> and no, seriously, I want to tell this to your listeners. I heard from two people, Laura McCowan, who's now one of the stories in, in the book coming out. Oh, no From way. your show. She's in Boston. She had quit her job in marketing to become a writer the day she listened to this Robcast episode from last year. And then, <laughs> yes. yeah. And then yes. Summer Dickey who would help me put on these Jump Club festivals for the next two years and was also, and is a huge fan of yours as well. <laughs> so that happened one week. The next week, the book deal came through. And then the week after that, I was approached by Ariana Huffington and we launched a media channel with the Huffington Post, which is a long story short. But within about a month, we were sharing the story in person and through video and other places and off whendajump.com, which at, up until then was just my personal blog. And, and we had a real thing. Wow. And, okay, so I have questions about what is it, what is it about this current system, economic, political, educational, cultural, because at my, because I have this running joke now that at my events, people come to my events and then quit their jobs. And I keep, I, I keep laughing that the batting, I'm raising my batting average. <laughs> about people who come and you start talking about soul, spirit, desire, integrity, dreams, what you're here to do. What is it about this system? Because coming from Ivy League, what is it about, you You talked about the staircase, that the best of the best of the best get to the top and go, is this it? You know what I mean? What are your observations having interacted with this many people about this exact thing? Well, to be honest, I actually don't think it's, it's limited to one type of person or background or education right, or right. degree. You know, we have folks that I've interviewed for the book that don't have a high school degree, yeah. that, um, that, that really were relying on very little other than guts to, to take this jump. Yeah. I think what we're seeing now, and the political piece, you know, sure, I think there's stuff that's going on in the political system today where everyone's taking a step back, whatever side of the aisle you're on, and saying... Am I engaged? Am I, am I part of something that's positive? Right? Yeah. There's, mm-hmm. there's more of that discourse. But I also think that it's just an interesting time in human history. If you look in the last hundred years, the way that technology has advanced yeah. and has changed the way we work and live. I mean, even the last 50 years, my parents and their parents, a successful career was to stay in one job, get the gold watch, retire, right? My grandparents lived through the depression. There was just a lot 
of unknown and uncertainties. And I'm not saying those have left, but today with the way you can work, you know, if you want to become a blogger but need to make money, you can drive for Uber. You can rent your apartment on Airbnb. Uh, you can look for work on Upwork, you know, as a freelancer for all of these different jobs. You can kind of create your own destiny through the technology that allows that yeah. in ways that have never before been possible. And I think you pair that piece of where we are in society with the technology advancing ah, interesting. with this reckoning politically where people are saying, what's, you know, is what's going on, at least for our country, something I'm proud of? You know, are we having the right conversations? Is this negativity that's pervasive in so many different pieces of life? Is that what I want my kids to grow up with, right? And I think a lot of the folks I've interviewed, frankly, say, if I don't listen to this little voice in my head, and I don't chase my dream, what does that show for my kids when I tell them to chase theirs? Yeah. And now there's the tools that I think it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be possible. Yeah, yeah. That's really, that's good. You know, people talk about how free market capitalism has an arc. Like, it goes somewhere. Like, it goes, like, if it's, we're going to get things shipped to you faster and cheaper, you're going to get more for less money. Um, If you follow this, it takes you to like a ruthless materialism. Yes. Can you get more for less faster? Um, which is a completely different set of muscles, skills, and frameworks than living from the soul and asking, is it good? Um, is it just? Is it fair? Does it make the kind of world? Um, I've uh, noticed when I... Have, when I talk publicly about giving your energies to creating the kind of world that you don't want to live in, um, how many people respond to, oh, that's right. That's why I don't like this job, or that's why this course of action doesn't work. I would be contributing to the creating of something that I don't want to be a part right. of. Right. And something about this moment in time <clears throat> has people going, nope, I'm not going to do that. So do you, <laughs> I mean, do you help people leave their jobs? What, what do you... It's funny what do you because call we it? actually people are like, well, I'll never show this to my boss or this or that. Our <laughs> community, we are non-denominational in, in like the jumps you take. We are we don't discriminate. <laughs> so no, it's true. You know, some jumps is it's interesting. We we did a collaboration with Airbnb last year. And I went up on a stage as part of it with two thousand Airbnb hosts. And I thought that we were a community of telling people to, to leave their job. You know, that, that was what I thought when to jump was in the beginning. And I said, if you've got a at the very end, I said, if you've got a jump, email us. And I, I put up an email address for the folks there. And we thought, you know, 10% of the people or 5% would email us. We had 700, 600 emails come in afterwards in the next probably 30 minutes. And almost every one of them had nothing to do with taking a jump to leave your job. It was from an audience of parents and grandparents, people with families. And the jumps that they described would be what I would call lifestyle jumps. It was, I want to have more time for my kids. I want to be a mom and have a career. I want to go back to school. I want to learn that language I never got to. So when you talk about the energies you spend Mm -hmm. on things that matter or don't, it made me realize that I think when to jump is really about having agency and saying, uh, I'm going to take life yeah. on rather than yeah, let yeah, life yeah. happen to me. The move from disempowerment to empowerment. Yep. And so the, the jumps you see across our community and in our work is 
internal jumps, people saying, I want to live in a different city, but I don't need to j quit my job. There are lifestyle jumps, there's side jumps, there's professional jumps. There's, there's so much here. And I think it's bigger than just quit your job and be happy. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's well said. Because by the way, that doesn't necessarily happen. I started when to jump because when I Googled in my office that night, when to chase dreams, which I did, all I found was the super prescriptive self-help or the super fluffy glitz and glam of Instagram photos of living in Bali. And it's like, that's not real life. So what is that, what is that 10,000 unsexy step process look like? Right. When you have bills, when you have, mm -hmm. if you have kids, especially there's like a, there are other lives involved in this. Yes. Um, so what, what next? Okay, so we'll get to the book in a second. What next for the communities, the events? What's, what's it look like? How can people connect? So everything's centered through our website, whentojump.com. We have a newsletter that goes out monthly. January 9th, book comes out, which we can talk about. We're going to be on four continents on a wild whirlwind tour. <laughs> uh, we'll be in Palo Alto, New York, Boston, D.C., London, Sydney, Dubai, Nashville, and <laughs> who's we by the way we is mostly me okay. <laughs> <laughs> i love it you know it's so it. funny i was at a conference we is actually me yeah we is me there's so much fake it till you make it here i was at a conference <laughs> goldman um, this is gonna sound like i'm bragging but i'll get to the funny part in a second i was named one of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs of this year of 2017 actually and um that might sound great, except for the fact my parents, when I got the letter, they were like, this is a fraud. Don't give them your social. It's probably mail fraud. Ends up it's not mail fraud. I get to go. It was with all of my idols. And, and somehow, you know, someone made the mistake somewhere in the line, and I got to go too. That's fine. But some guy said to me, this entrepreneur that was amazing, he said, you know, I think we should do something together. Have your marketing team reach out to me. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'll get my marketing team on that. And then I, uh, I looked around and up and I said, yeah, I'll email you soon. <laughs> but anyway, we'll be at events around the world, uh, January, February, March, and then our Jump Club 3. So our annual member festival for 2018 will be in October in London, England. And that comes off of San Francisco 2016, New York 2017. And that's our big celebration. And they've grown each year. We hope to, to keep it up, but really make it meaningful and interesting. And so hopefully I'll see some of the listeners, whether it's on our book tour or, or in London. Oh, man. And what, um, and so the book, um, how, do, how do you just, the book is the stories. So the book is some of the stories I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, it includes 44 case studies from every type of person, from every background imaginable, like I mentioned, from 22-year-olds yeah. to 73-year-olds. Yeah first-generation immigrants, college dropouts, high school dropouts, to grad students, to successful entrepreneurs. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg write, wrote the forward, which yeah. was incredible. Um, and then, the la honestly, the hardest part has been writing my own story as part of it. Mm. Uh, the editor felt like we had a pretty good collection of stories in terms of where they were and being polished, but took really the bulk of a year and a half to put down my story and, and get personal and yeah. and really create that arc, which is how the book's um, organized. It's called The Jump Curve. And it's a framework to think about making a jump. So all of the stories uh, are organized it. across you know one of four themes that follow each other. And each theme begins with my story as it relates to the theme. It then cuts for 10 or 12 
case studies. Yeah. Finishes with takeaways. And then the next yeah. theme starts with my story where I left off. It's like you're, it's like the science of the 10,000 non-sexy steps. Exactly. Like if you were to break it down and people could find themselves in that, they'd be like, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. Apparently lots of people have been through this exact thing. Yeah. And what I hope the book is, honestly, is permission. You know, permission for for me of five years ago to be like, oh, I've got this thing. I've got these 44 people next to me on my yeah. desk who are saying it's okay to do something different. And also that it's uh, it's approachable, whether it's now or in 10 years when you've jumped and you want to revisit, you can doggy your page and, and come back to it. Like I want this to be something that helps people take that jump and makes it feel like you have permission to do it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm so glad you came back on. Thank you for having me. This was something I've been really looking forward to. I mean, your listeners know this, but you're just doing amazing stuff. You have a pretty great perspective on life and work and what it means to find fulfillment. And you were the first interview I've ever done. <laughs> we brought it all back around. I love it. Well, I think it's really inspiring. And I especially, I love that you are saying uh, enough with Instagram. This is the actual unsexy dirt and sweat of living your life in a different way. That's to me a real gift. Anybody who can give that legs and detail, it's, it's serious. It's huge. Well, it's thank just you. totally huge. I appreciate it. And we're just working on getting the message out. You know, book, we have a podcast, which you'll be on. Um, we have our festivals. If there's someone out there who has a story or needs some guidance, hopefully we can provide it. Man, oh man, ladies and gentlemen, it's not Michael, it's Mike Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> when to Jump is the book available and find bookstores everywhere upon listening to this podcast. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks for having me.